0: Uh, Actually, before I dismiss the children to the children's church, can I have Caroline and Harrison, where are they at? There they are. I'm going to have them come up because I want you all to meet them just for a moment. Caroline and Harrison have been a part of the church at least since COVID because I remember being in the hospital with them for some other issues. But Caroline and Harrison have chosen to make Trinity their church home. So this is, they are our newest members at Trinity Wesleyan Church. And I wanted to give you the opportunity as a church to meet them, and what I'll ask you to do is after the service, go out of the way to find them, to let them know how much you are uh, grateful for them being a part of the body of Christ here at Trinity. Caroline was nervous about me having her come up, so I'm intentionally not asking any questions, but I want you to make them feel welcome this morning. I now dismiss the children, to Children's Church, there to my left and your right, and it is a privilege to know that we have a great children's ministry. This past Wednesday night, I got a text during our adult service that we had the most kids we've ever had at Awana on Wednesday night. I think we had 63 this past Wednesday night, which is fantastic, so... They're doing a great job. Some of those are kids that we see on Sunday morning. Some of them are kids that are from the community that we only get them on Wednesday night. But every time they walk onto the campus here at Trinity, they get to experience the love of Jesus and they get to hear the message of Jesus Christ. So it is a great ministry. We're very grateful for that. In 1988, author Bruce Larson shared a supposedly true story about a man who was on his way to a job interview. He had been out of work for many months and on his way to what seemed like a promising interview, he encountered a woman on the side of the road who had just had a flat tire. Now here's the dilemma that existed. If he stops to help her out, he is likely going to be late to his interview. As a Christian though, he feels compelled to stop so that he can change the woman's tire. Immediately upon changing the tire, he goes on to the interview. Little did he know that he had helped out the very person who was going to be interviewing him for his job. This fact was not evident until it came time for him to go to the office of the personnel director. The title we give to such an individual is a Good Samaritan. Actually, it's a title that is often used in our culture. In fact, all 50 states and the District of Columbia have laws in place that are known as Good Samaritan laws. These are laws that provide protection for those who help others out. But the United States is not the only nation to institute such Good Samaritan laws, even using that as their title. In fact, in a brief search, I found 15 different nations that enforce such laws. Many of those laws are relatively new to the books. They're laws that are just now being put in place. One, United Arab Emirates, UAE, one that is a predominantly Muslim nation now has, as of 2020, now has a good Samaritan law in place. China. In 2011, there was an incident where a toddler called Wang Yu was killed when she was run over by two vehicles. The entire incident was caught on video, which showed 18 people seeing the child but refusing to help. It is believed that the majority of them chose not to help out of fear that they might be punished for making the situation worse. In response, in 2017, a Good Samaritan law was established even in China. I begin here today to simply say that the story of the Good Samaritan transcends Christianity. Certainly, it is a story that Jesus tells, but the principles found within it have been embraced by people all over the world, regardless of their religious faith. But what if there's more to this story than what the world has so willingly embraced? What if there's something very important that the rest of the world has missed within the story of the Good Samaritan? I believe that there is. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 10 today. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus has sent out 72 disciples, empowering them to go and to perform miracles, to do great things. And now they've come back with a glowing report. It's likely that many gathered to hear these reports and maybe even to participate in sharing their own stories of how God was moving. A type of revival was taking place and the power of God was on full display. But not all who heard of this move of God would embrace it. There would be some who would look with a sense of skepticism. In fact, as we begin today in verse 25, we see one of these skeptics. He is asking a brilliant question, but from the very beginning, we're told that his reason for asking was less than noble. Listen to it again, beginning in verse 25. I'll begin reading through verse 29. This is what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So here we are and we're introduced to this expert in the law. At least that's the title that he's given here in this passage. It should be noted that when the law is mentioned in scripture, that we typically are not talking about some type of attorney or judge. Instead, we are talking about the law of Moses as such. It is possible that he is a Levite, or perhaps a priest, or at least one who has devoted his life to the study of the law. He is likely either a Pharisee or perhaps a Sadducee. And as such, it is likely that he would have been viewed as a very religious man. But is religion enough? He begins with a question that is often asked of Jesus. I think of Nicodemus, who visited Jesus in the cover of night, to ask a similar question in John chapter 3. It is the same question that's asked by the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, and it is a logical question. The Old Testament often talked about the promise of eternal life, and eternal life was a central part of what Jesus came to offer. In fact, he talked about it all the time listen to just a few of his Jesus's proclamations in John 3:16For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In John 11 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. John 4.14, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And finally, in John 5.24, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now, I could go on with countless other examples of Jesus' promise of eternal life, but I think you get the point. It was something Jesus talked about a lot. It was something he clearly wanted people to receive. This man asks a good question, but Jesus chooses not to directly answer his question. And Perhaps part of this is because Jesus knew that although it was a good question, the man didn't really want to know the answer to the question. In fact, maybe he already knew the answer to the question. Jesus responds by calling this man back to the law that was so important to him. Remember, he is an expert in the law. So Jesus asks the question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? His response is very biblical. It's accurate. He starts by going back to the crux of the Jewish faith. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5 was read daily by faithful Jews. It's known as the Shema. And it said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Then he adds to it, including a verse from Leviticus 19.18, which instructed, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus doesn't in any way disagree with this man's response. In fact, it's really not all that different from Jesus' response as recorded in Matthew 22 when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. As such, Jesus commends this man. Good answer. Now do those things and you will live. If you want eternal life, basically obey the law. But I want you to consider the impossibility of the task to which the scriptures and Jesus are calling this man. The book of Romans informs us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means you have the law and all you have to do is keep that law, but all have sinned and fallen short of that law. Galatians 2.16 tells us that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Adding that we are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So why did Jesus point this man to the law instead of simply pointing him to faith in Jesus Christ? Why did he point him to a law that he would never be able to meet, never be able to fulfill? Jesus was simply holding the mirror of the law up to this legal expert to demonstrate how the law actually condemned him. If the expert in the law had been honest with himself and with the Lord, He ought to have acknowledged that he did not have love for God as he should have. He didn't even love his neighbor as himself. Yes, he could quote what the law said, but the truth is he had not loved God wholeheartedly, nor had he loved his neighbor as himself. This man, steeped in the study of God's law, should have been broken by law's message. He should have felt deep conviction. He should have been penitent and humble. His follow-up question ought to have been something like this. I know from bitter experience that I cannot fulfill even the most basic commandments of the law. Where can I find redemption? It's a question that each of us probably ought to be asking. We recognize we have all fallen short of God's glory, and we may try to be good people, to do good things, but the truth is our goodness is never enough. So then the question arises, where can I find redemption? That question would have been more in line with what the people said on the day of Pentecost. As Peter and his disciples preached, they were convicted of their sin, and they replied, brothers, What shall we do? Let me pause for a moment to apply this to each of us. You can do all sorts of good with your life. You can be a really good person who is faithful to the church and to the Lord in so many different ways. But the reality is, you will never be good enough based on your own merit. The law sets boundaries that we desperately need. If we don't have boundaries, we do dumb things. It's kind of like a speed limit. Without that speed limit, we probably would push it as fast as we can go. You may not like the speed limit, but the speed limit is there to protect you. God's law is also there to protect you. You may not always like it, but it's what's good for you. The law serves as a boundary for you. But it also serves to point out how inadequate our goodness truly is. We all need God's grace to make up for the difference where we fall short. This man would have been included. Even though he's an expert in the law, even though he's likely a religious man, he needed God's grace. But this man, instead of looking into the mirror of the law, he wants to sort of change the subject. He wants to talk about the details of what Jesus means by a neighbor. Now, I want you to remember that this guy is a religious man. He's an expert in the law. He's likely viewed as a man of great faith. But one of the first things I want you to see today is that faith without works is dead. Just because he was a religious man did not mean that he was right with God. Actually, faith without works is dead. It's useless. And you'll see this repeated in the parable that we're about to read. James 2.14 asks the question, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? He will then go on to add that such faith is useless. Yet here we have a man who knows the law. He's religious. He can probably quote more scriptures than anybody else in this room. Yet all of the religious faith apparently does not lead him to transformation, does not lead him even to transparency before the Lord, and it will not lead him to action. His heart is too hard. Being religious does not mean you'll be righteous. There must be more. So Jesus uses his question, who is my neighbor? Listen, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus replied, go and do likewise. Now, this is one of many parables that Jesus would tell, and it drives home a very powerful message. But as with most of Jesus's parables, there is a deep connection to reality. The story begins with a journey on a very dangerous road. According to verse 30, it is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It is a real road that can still be traveled today. According to John MacArthur, he said, From Jerusalem to Jericho is about a 4,000-foot drop in elevation across 17 miles of winding road, crossing barren mountains over high, very high rough terrain. He goes on to describe steep mountain drops with caves and massive boulders along the way which offer hideouts for robbers. Well, this man makes the foolish decision to travel alone. I remember many years ago, I took a group of teenagers to Jamaica for a mission trip. I know it sounds like such a difficult mission trip. You had to go to the Caribbean island of Jamaica. Actually, we stayed in a relatively nice area, but we did work on the side of a mountain, a town called Daniel Town, where it was incredibly destitute. We were staying in Montego Bay, though, a relatively safe area, but regardless of how safe the environment may be, there will still need to be precautions in place. Actually, one of the first things we did was we had a group meeting where I sat everybody down. We had about 30 teens and a few adults, and I just explained that nobody can go anywhere without permission from either myself or I had an assistant to help out. And no matter where you go, you can never go anywhere by yourself. And we were all on the same page, at least that's what I thought. About an hour or so later, one of the adults came to me. He said, I just got mugged. No way. What happened? He went on to explain how he decided to go on a walk to a nearby restaurant. There's a restaurant called Margaritaville. Jimmy Buffett wrote a song actually related to that. He decided he was going to walk down there by himself. And on his way back, he was held at knife point and someone stole his money. Now he was fortunately only holding 20 bucks and he came away without injury. Again, my response was, No way. I actually couldn't believe that what he was saying was true. I assumed he was joking because he joked a lot. I said, we just had this meeting to talk about the fact that nobody could go anywhere without permission and nobody could go anywhere without someone else with them. And here you've done exactly that. He said, I'm still telling you the truth. (laughs) He looked down at the ground and he said, I thought you were talking to the teenagers. Well, the guy in our story, by the way, we we turned that into a teaching opportunity. Immediately, we called everybody back together, and I said, I want you all to know what Wayne just did. And we had this conversation. I explained it. I said, nobody can go anywhere without permission. Nobody can go by themselves. I want you to know I never had a problem with a teenager from that point on that trip. Now, back to our story. The guy in our story here foolishly walked this dangerous road on his own. And in his case, he lost far more than $20. He is beaten, he is stripped, almost naked. He is robbed of everything that he has. In essence, he is left in critical condition, a dying man left on a desert road. But apparently, there were some travelers who would be passing through. Maybe there would still be some hope for this man. In fact, verse 31 seems to grant us some really good news. There is a priest that is on his way to the temple. Surely, he would have been familiar with Leviticus 19.18, which I mentioned earlier, love your neighbor as yourself. And he would have known that later in that same chapter, the principle of neighborly love would be extended even to strangers, even those who were not Jews, Verse 33 and 34 state that if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. And surely this priest would have known Micah 6.8, a verse that we've talked about often here. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And finally, he would have been familiar with Exodus 23, verse 4 and 5, which says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. So, if you find an enemy's donkey, you are required to help. Surely the burden to help would be even more critical if we were talking about a man. But that moment of hope quickly fades. Verse 31 tells us that the priests cross the road and pass by on the other side. In essence, he crossed the street simply to avoid this desperate man. It would be easier if I did not see him and did not experience him. Again, we'll come back to it in a moment, but this man of faith, this religious man, was not willing to help. But maybe someone else would come by. Actually, soon afterward, told that there is a Levite that comes passing by. Now, I will say Levites and priests are very similar to each other. In fact, they are often spoke of synonymously and for good reason. According to Jewish tradition, all priests were from the descendants of Aaron, who was from the tribe of Levi. In other words, all priests also were Levites because they come from the tribe of Levi. But there were some Levites who were not necessarily from the line of Aaron. But regardless of whether we're talking about Levites or priests, their responsibilities were still very much about the temple. Levites might serve as the temple guard, or they might care for the temple gardens or the animals that would be used for sacrifice. They might include housekeeping or construction at the temple, or perhaps they may have merely been assistants to the priests. The point is that we're talking about religious folks who know the law, and they should be filled with great compassion. Priest, Levite, doesn't matter. Yet again, the Levite crosses the street and passes by on the other side of the road with no concern for this broken man. All of their faith and their religion did not lead to works of righteousness and compassion. In fact, it would be fair to say that there are actually three dead or nearly dead men in this story. You have the man who has been beaten and left for dead. But you also have these two men who are physically alive, but they appear to be spiritually dead. Yes, they have all this knowledge. Yes, they may be viewed as good, respectable men, but the truth is they are spiritually dead. And one might wonder why this priest and this Levite would avoid helping this man. Maybe it was because they were just busy. They had an agenda. They had things that they wanted to do. They were going to the temple, and this would have no doubt disrupted all of their plans. In fact, according to the law, had they come in contact with a dead body, and it's possible that this man appeared to already be dead, had they come in contact with a dead body, they would immediately be declared unclean as well. A dead body was viewed as unclean. What that means is they would no longer be able to serve in the temple, the same temple they were likely going to serve in that day. I almost picture these guys debating between love or the law. If they show love and compassion to this man, they may not be able to fulfill the law. But what they didn't understand was that love and the law are not exclusive to one another. In other words, God didn't want them to choose between love and the law, but rather God wanted them to love while keeping the whole law. The same verses that i referenced earlier were a part of the law which they should have been seeking to keep i wonder how many of us find ourselves too busy to take care of the people around us i wonder if there aren't a few of us that would like to help but we don't want to get our hands dirty we don't want to make others uncomfortable or maybe we're hesitant to help, almost with a sense of, well, it's, it's your own fault that you're in this situation. You know, in this case, he probably shouldn't have been out there by himself on a dangerous road. Maybe today we assume that they're in this position of need because of an addiction or because of their own laziness, which may or may not be true. But either way, it doesn't change the fact that the need is still present. Let me tell you that the most compassionate people in the world ought to be Christians. We ought to be leading the way and showing others what it is to be compassionate, to show mercy, to help people when they're down and to pick them up. But this story is still not over. Jesus tells of another man who is coming down the road, and this time it is one who is unlikely to be of service to this fallen man. It is a Samaritan, a foreigner who was despised by the Jews. They were viewed as selfish, ungodly, and even unclean. If anyone was going to help, it wouldn't be him. In fact, as this story is told, there was likely the expectation that the Samaritan would potentially look for anything that the thieves might have left behind and he would keep it for himself. Yet Jesus portrays this man in a very different light. In fact, in essence, he becomes the hero of the story. He sees this man and immediately takes pity on him. In other words, he cared something the other two had not done. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, cleaning them with oil and disinfecting them with wine. But there's a problem with all of this. This man has been beaten and robbed of everything he had. He likely has little clothing to make for bandages. And and surely the thieves would not have left him with oil and wine. That means that this Samaritan traveler would be forced to use his own supplies to care for this victim. He then loads this man up onto his own donkey, bringing him to town. And even this is an act of personal sacrifice for this man whom he did not know. The Samaritan would now have to walk as opposed to riding his own donkey. He then spends the evening taking care of this man at a local inn. And then, when morning comes, he will continue on his journey. But before he leaves, he gives two days' worth of wages to this innkeeper in order to pay for the victim's needs. He even promises to come back and to take care of any additional needs that might occur. By the way, it is estimated that the two denarii, the two days wages, would have paid for room and board at an inn for about two months. Imagine being that innkeeper. Sure, I'll help him. I'll take care of him. You're paying me for two months worth of a stay. In other words, this is an extravagantly generous gesture on behalf of the Samaritan. The Samaritan man is a model of love, but he is also perfectly fulfilling the law of Moses. So now Jesus ends the parable with a question. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The answer is a no-brainer. Certainly the priests and the Levites should have been neighbors, but they weren't. Instead, only one acted as a neighbor, and it was this Samaritan but I find the answer from this expert in the law so intriguing. He can't even refer to him as a Samaritan because I don't want to say anything that makes the Samaritans look good. Perhaps it was his hatred toward the Samaritans. So instead he responds with the one who had mercy on him. Now it may have been his racism that kept him from calling him a Samaritan. But I think there is a message that is important to us here as well. At the beginning of this story, this man is identified by his nationality, by his race. But in the end, he is identified only in the mercy which he displayed. What is it that identifies you today? For many of us, we'll say, well, I'm a Christian. Maybe because my parents and my grandparents were Christians. We may be able to identify a church that we once were a part of, and that's what identifies us. That's the culture that we live in today. Maybe we'll refer to ourselves as citizens of the United States. That doesn't necessarily say a whole lot about us, because the truth is there are some good ones and there are some bad ones. What is it that identifies you? Over the years, I have seen many acts that spoke to me. I have been impressed with the intelligence of others. I've been amazed by the talents of others. But what stands out most to me is the grace and generosity that I've witnessed most directly. In fact, I may forget some of those other things, but the grace and generosity will never fade away. I will always know those individuals as the ones who were there for me when I needed them the most. What is it that will identify you? So let me get back to where this whole conversation began. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What a great question this man asks. You can try to be a good person. You can try to be generous, you can try to keep the law, but the sad reality is that you'll never be able to do it all on your own. I referred to this earlier as an impossible task, and that's exactly what it is. If you try to do this on your own, you will always fall short. Yes, there will be days that you are generous. There will be days that you are good. There will be certain acts that other people will take notice of, and it'll be great. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your goodness will never be enough to make up for the times that you've fallen short. Selfishness and pride will always get in the way at some point or another. Our agendas or our fears will always get in the way. But there is one who can make up for where we fall short, and his name is Jesus. Maybe some of us today need to look in that mirror of the law and to identify the fact that we've not been as good as we claim to be. Maybe what we need to do is to turn to the grace of Jesus who will make up for where we've fallen short. I do challenge you today. A couple things. Number one, make sure that you are not the Levite or the priest. You be the Samaritan who actually shows the love and the law blended together. That should be you. But recognize you cannot do it on your own. You need the grace of Jesus to make up for the difference. If you would, bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, we recognize that we have all fallen short of your perfection, the standard that you have set and you have required of us. But you have also made a way for us to be forgiven and to be made right before you. Oh, we want to be people who know your word, but we don't want to be people who know the word and yet it does not change who we are. Father, I pray that you would help us to become people that genuinely reflect the love and the law of God in our lives. Father, I pray today that you would open up doors of opportunity for us to go in and to reach those who maybe right now they are lost those who are broken in our society, those who have experienced hardship. Help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, much like the Samaritan is described in here, one who was full of compassion and mercy, one who was a neighbor. But help us to be a neighbor to the world around us. Help us to be people who genuinely are looking for opportunities to touch other people's lives. Lord, I pray that more than anything, you would help us to be a people that are fully surrendered to you. We've talked a lot about goodness. And we've talked about generosity today, trying to live up to a standard. Lord, we know that what we really need is a right relationship with you. Just because we've been in church for the last 20 years doesn't make us right. Just because we can quote scriptures doesn't make us right. Lord, help us to be a people to actually reflect the spirit of God in our lives to the world around us. Father, I pray that you would do great and mighty things through us, your people. Help us to be a people who show the world Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. I confess that at times we as the body of Christ have not done this very well. It is time for us to do it well. You have the spirit of God that dwells in you. Allow that spirit to work in you as you see the needs of others around you. It is a blessing to have you with us today at this time. Actually, I do want to just mention one other thing I forgot to mention. There is another membership class today. I've got two other families that are already planning on being in there. So if you would like to become a member, we welcome two members in earlier. The plan is to do this again next month if we can. So we'd love to have you be a part of that. It's such a blessing to have you today. Go in peace.